1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. Let's start out reading a few verses here. It says, This is a true saying, If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desire, desireth a good work. And then he goes on, he gives some qualifications. We're going to go through those in a minute. So, in, first, in the first two chapters of 1 Timothy, we see Paul expressing to Timothy the importance of only preaching the things that he had told him. Right? Timothy was not supposed to come up with new stuff. Okay, I heard a statement earlier this week uh, from, or uh, a couple weeks ago, from some Ruckmanites talking about how you know it's not that they're always coming up with new things; it's just they're constantly building on each other. And there's this new, they keep you know Ruckmanites keep revealing all these just brand new truths, you know, because they're just building on the foundation of you know their forefathers, like Peter Ruckman and people like that. But no, that's not what Paul told him to do. Paul didn't tell Timothy, "Hey, I want you to preach my doctrine." And then any new revelations after that, you add that to it. And then the next generation, add that to it. In fact, look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Alright, 2 Timothy chapter 2, just to show how that mindset is just dead wrong. He says, the things, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Alright, the things that he taught him, he said, I want you to go and teach those people to teach the same things, not different things. Okay? And so this is important when it comes to the office of a bishop. We want to make sure that we're passing on the things that are the same. That we're not changing stuff. We're not adding things. And we see a lot of what he talked about in those first two chapters were especially things concerning behavior. But we see doc- we do see certain doctrines mentioned in there. And we're going to see a very important doctrine mentioned at the very end of this chapter. Okay, But anyway... I don't want to get ahead of myself, but so notice, so you know, he tells them though, all right, you need to be bishops, you're going to need deacons, you're going to need leaders in the church, and if somebody wants that role, they desire a good work. And I think it's interesting because when he goes to give the qualifications, one of the qualifications we do not see in here is that a bishop must first be called. You know, you got to be called of God. You know, young men, some of y'all to figure out if God's called you to preach, and then you know, and. You know, the Bible just says, you know, hey, if you desire that, you desire a good work, so here's some qualifications. And one thing I find interesting, well, let's read some of these uh, first before I get into some of the exceptions and things that people are always trying to come up with. But I want you to first notice that the office of a bishop is not just for anyone. It says in verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, but covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. So right here we see that a bishop is not just for anyone, it's people who meet certain qualifications. And I personally believe that these qualifications, we should follow these blindly. Alright? What is said there is what we ought to follow. End of story. And one thing that we hear all the time are people making exceptions. People making excuses. We see in here it says the husband of one wife. Yeah, I listened to a pastor one time. My dad was talking with him. And my dad was saying how you know he didn't agree with this one guy and you know, being a pastor and everything. The guy was divorced, 
And then this, this was the, you know, my dad said, you know, the Bible's very clear, it says a husband of one wife. And then this preacher, he looked at my dad, and he's like, you mean to tell me that some man that God has called, a God-called man, can be disqualified because he's married to some Jezebel? You mean to tell me some Jezebel can disqualify a man? My dad's like, it's not the Jezebel disqualifying him, it's the Bible disqualifying him. I mean, it, that's end of story, you know. And it's like they want to make this excuse, you know. It, it's you know the woman can't, uh, you know, mess anything up. She can't take that away. But you know what? It's God doing that. He's the one that said the husband of one wife. God said that, and then he kept saying too, a God called man. He kept adding that. Well, wait a minute. Okay, God called for bishops to be people who meet certain qualifications. So if the man does not meet those qualifications, he is not a God called man. And if he was a God-called man, and he ends up failing in these qualifications, then you know what? God has now called for him to step down or be removed. That's what he's been called to do. Yeah, he's a God-called man, and he's somebody that God has called to get out of the job as pastor. So just you know, stupid stuff like that, because it's just not convenient for them. A lot of these guys, that's their livelihood. That's how they make their money. They don't want to have to go and get a job in a factory. They don't want to have to go out and make an honest living. They want to continue getting their salaries. They're not about to give these things up. But listen, somebody who meets the qualifications of a bishop is not necessarily superior to someone who does not. And that's what—that's where people get bent out of shape and offended. Oh, well, you're saying just because I don't meet the qualifications, you know, you, you think you're better. No, it's just being a bishop or a pastor. It is a very specific role. It requires, you know, certain you know, skills and certain abilities in certain areas, and not everyone has it. Not just anyone can do it. Alright? For example, women can't do it. You know, for one, they're not supposed to usurp authority over the man. And second of all, you know, they're different than men. And so God took care of that real easy. You know, it says if a man desire the office of a bishop, right there, women are ruled out. Okay? Women pastors are not biblical. It says if a man desire the office of a bishop. People often go to, well, husband of one wife proves it's supposed to be a man. No, actually it was proven before that when he said, if a man desire the office of a bishop. Right there, that disqualifies women in verse 1. Alright? They lose it in verse 1, and yet they lose it out, you know, they lose two in the husband of one wife. Alright? But they were already thrown out and disqualified by verse 1. And But somebody who does not meet qualifications, it doesn't even mean they're not necessarily right with God or not the will of God. Okay, there's some people, there's some men that just, they're not married. It's not that they messed up, it's not that they did something wrong, but they're just not married. Therefore, it's not God's will for them to be the pastor. They don't have children. Therefore, it's not God's will for them to be a pastor. It doesn't mean they're inferior. It doesn't mean they can't do great things for God. It doesn't mean they can't serve in the ministry. There's a lot of things that they could do, but they can't pastor a church. They can't be a bishop. God gave specific instructions for that. Because and God did not intend for everyone to be a pastor. Okay, now you go, to, you take your kids to youth conferences and you take them to camp. They want every boy to surrender to be a pastor. They want every boy to surrender to be a full time Christian worker. You know, every you know every one of them. It's like if you don't, you're not right with God. And it's, sometimes it's like you know who do these guys think pays the bills in their churches and stuff? You know, I mean they get up in these meetings and they just chastise these young men. For you know, wanting to just go make an honest living and serve in their church, you know, but not not be full time. And it's like, you better be thankful for those guys who are working a job and paying their tithes and offerings and still serving in the church because they're why you have a full time salary. 
And you ought, you ought to be thankful for those people. And they're doing a great work by doing what they're doing. God has not called for everyone to be a pastor. So this is not about you know who's the most superior in the church. That's not what this is. This is a very specific role and it's not for everybody. And we've just got to get it out of our heads that just we can do whatever we want and be whatever we want. Alright? That's that's America. That's not the church. That is not what God intended, and we should follow these rules blindly. What it says is what we should follow. End of story. And the need for pa- the need for pastors, it does not create the necessity the necessity to lower the standards. And that's the mentality we have today. Years ago, I was listening to the radio and they were interviewing a Navy SEAL on there. And they were talking about how the number of Navy SEALs is way down. And the reason for that is because not enough people can, you know, qualify. And they, one of the things the guy said is he says, we are not going to lower the standards. They've got a set of standards, and I've seen some of the things they put those guys through. I heard one guy say they like drown them and revive them like three times or something. You know what? I'm out. Right? I'm out. You're going to lose me right there. They tell me you got to go in that water. We're going to drown you. We're going to revive you, and then we're going to do it again. I'm going to ring the bell. I think that's what they do. They got to ring a bell if they quit. I'd be like, before you get me in that water, I'm going to just let me go ring the bell right now because I'm not drowning. All right. And you know, thank God for people that have that those abilities. I think one of the reasons they want to lower the standards is because they, you know they want to have the first gay Navy SEAL, the first woman Navy SEAL, and stuff like that. But thankfully, you know, they're not. They're like, we're not going to lower the standards, and that's where we're at in churches today because there's so many places, especially down south, there's Baptist churches everywhere, and a lot of these places they can't find pastors. Well, we got to get somebody in there. So you know what they do? They compromise and they bring in people that aren't qualified. That's not what we need to do. All right, the the fact that we have less godly men that are preaching right, that are qualified, it does not mean it's time for us to lower the standards. That is the last thing we need to do. That's going to make everything worse, and we'll see why that's that'll ruin things in just a little bit. But also, you know, we need to understand these rules, they're timeless, okay? They applied back then in Timothy's day, and they apply to us today. We should follow the same rules. That's what we see in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. The same rules they had back then are the rules we ought to have today for our bishops and deacons. And listen. I don't have hard feelings. I am not. I'm not an enemy to pastors who don't necessarily meet the qualifications as spelled out in the Bible. But you know who I do have hard feelings towards are the guys who send them out. They're, that's what I have a problem with. And let, me, and let me explain why. Okay, my dad. All right, my dad. He's been pastoring the same church for 30 years. Okay, my dad. He started pastoring his first church at 18 years old. He was 18. He did not have a wife. He did not have any children. My dad, he quit Bible college because of the fact, not you know, not because he thought Bible college was pointless or anything like that, but back in the late 70s, everybody was preaching the rapture's about to come. You know, the rapture's about to come, the rapture, and, and nobody wanted to go to Bible college. I've heard other preachers from the 70s era talk about how they quit Bible college because they thought the rapture was going to come. That's when imminency was getting really, really big, the doctrine of imminency in Baptist churches. And... My dad's like, I want to do something for God before the rapture comes. And so he quit Bible college and he took a church. Now think about it. You say, well, you know, that was, that was kind of foolish of him to do that. Well, I'm sorry. What 18 year old doesn't think that they can't pastor a church? All right. 
I mean, eight, I mean, what 18-year-old guy doesn't think he can do it all? My dad will tell you, he thought, he was convinced that he was going to be Jack Hile's successor. I mean, that, I mean, that, that's just how he was. He's like, I, he thought he was going to be the next Jack Hiles. He had the big dreams. I mean, Jesus is about to come back. i got to do something. Some church calls him. They want him to be a pastor. Yeah, I, I could do it. But you know what should have happened is whoever it was that had contacted the pastor that sent him out, you know, that pastor should have been like, Tom, I love you. You're a great preacher. you got a great future. But you're 18. You're not even married. You don't even have any kids. You shouldn't go pastor that church. And my dad will be the first one to tell you he was not ready to pastor the church. But he'll also tell you, you know, what 18-year-old doesn't think he can do it all? And so, you know, we need pastors who will actually stick to their guns and kind of rein some of these guys in. Because we don't need to send them off, you know, just let them blast off and just blow up and destroy churches and mess things up and end up looking bad. We've got to make sure they're ready. And pastors who send out guys who are not qualified are doing those young men a great disservice. They're setting them up for failure. And often those failures might end up getting them discouraged and might eventually get them quitting on the ministry. And that pastor didn't help them at all. Yeah, you're going to hurt their feelings when you tell them, I'm sorry, man, but you're not ready yet. You're going to hurt their feelings. But it's better to hurt their feelings now and then and get them to wait and send them out when they're ready than to not hurt their feelings and then send them out and then let them learn the hard way that they're not ready to go. And that's what pastors are doing all the time to young men because they haven't got the guts and the backbone and they don't have the leadership ability to rein these guys in and tell them, like, sorry, buddy, you're not ready. And so I personally, my beef is with the guys sending these, these young men out that aren't ready. And I want to be nice to guys that aren't necessarily qualified, and I want to encourage them, but, and I'm not in the business. You know, I'm, not, I'm no pope. I haven't been uh, made the Archdiocese of Illinois, and I'm not going to go removing people from their positions and things like that. But I'm going to tell you what, I, I'm, and I keep learning the hard way, I need to be careful about who I align myself with because there are there's a lot of unqualified people that are out there that if you do, you get too close to these guys, when they're crashing and burning and being stupid, you're going to look stupid with them. And learn some of that stuff the hard way. So the qualifications, all right, these qual- let's, let's look at these qualifications. We're supposed to fo- uh, follow them blindly. So the first thing it says, a bishop then must be blameless. All right, Now, when it says blameless there... A lot of times, I've heard people before where they will talk, they'll be talking about somebody that they don't like. They'll be talking about a preacher that they don't like. Well, did you hear this about him? Did you hear this about him? Did you hear this? You know, they'll come up with all these rumors. And these rumors aren't even true. But they'll tell you, there's all these rumors. Well, you know, a bishop's supposed to be blameless. Okay? And look at all that he's getting blamed for. Therefore, he's not qualified. But wait, in Genesis chapter 44, the first time we see the word blameless used, it says in verse 8, Behold the money which be found in our sacks' mouths, we brought again unto thee out of the land of Canaan. How then should we steal out of thy Lord's house silver or gold? With whomsoever of thy servants it be found, both let him die, and we also will be my Lord's bondmen. And he said, Now also let it be according unto your words. He with whom it be found shall be my servant, and ye shall be blameless. In other words, you will not be guilty. Alright? So just because somebody gets blamed for something or gets accused of something, it doesn't mean they're a bad guy or disqualified from being a pastor. If some woman were to come along and accuse me of some wickedness, 
That does not now mean that I'm not blameless. Would well, you hear what they said about him? You hear that rumor that's going around? What matters is, am I guilty or not? And if I'm not guilty, then I'm not disqualified. But if I'm guilty, I am disqualified. So just because somebody's getting blamed for stuff, you know, because, I mean, all the greats, alright, all those who are really shaking things up and doing great things for God, they're going to have the accusations thrown at them. Jesus had accusations thrown at him. He was accused. He was blamed for a lot of things. But he was blameless because he was not guilty of any of those things. And so, blameless doesn't mean nobody's ever accused you of anything. It just means you're not guilty of the things you are being accused of. And so, mentions the husband of one wife. Alright, the husband of one wife. Now, I think that's pretty cut and dry. I think that's pretty simple that that means, you know, one wife. And people say, well, that's talking about, you know, you know, polygamy and stuff like that, you know, means one wife at a time. Alright? Now, where do they get this from? You know, you know, they get it a lot of times from their leaders. You know, you've got, you know, everything brings forth after his own kind. You got Schofield, who wrote the Schofield Bible that has influenced, I mean, thousands of Baptists for generations now, who was a divorced man, somebody who was not qualified to be in the ministry, and made his own study Bible that is still widely used today. And the biggest promoters of the Schofield Bible, you know what? They're all for divorced pastors. And one of their biggest heroes, the biggest one that promoted that stuff, guys like Peter Ruckman, who was divorced twice. Okay? You know, he was divorced two times, and yet he was... I mean, this guy still is lifted up as this great man. I was just watching a video it was of all these Ruckmanite craziness videos where they're all being weird. And there was like this camp meeting going on where these people are like running the aisles and stuff, yelling and shouting. And what is there up on the platform? There's a big billboard or a big banner with Peter Ruckman's picture on it. And I'm just thinking, you know, can you imagine? Can you imagine if we had some kind of big meeting here and we had a big billboard up there and it had like Pastor Anderson's face on it or something like that? We would never hear the end of it. We would be a cult. Officially declared a cult, especially, especially if we were being crazy in the service and had people running the idols. But they do it with Peter Ruckman, and it's okay. I mean, the double standards of Baptists is just—it's—it's it's absolutely disgusting. But husband of one wife, very clear. I think if a, if a man has been divorced, he should not be a pastor. End of story. Well, what if it was before he was saved? You know what? It's not. We see no exceptions in here, so we don't get to add an exception in there. All right. And either way, all right, I can give you that. All right, fine. It's you know, divorce doesn't disqualify you, but at the same time, there's other things in here that will disqualify you just by you being divorced. Okay. Even if that meant one wife at a time, which I don't believe it does. But let's let's look at some of these, and we'll we'll see them as we go. But. Uh, you know, if a man's been divorced, he's not really blameless, is he? He's not blameless. You know, he, according to the Bible, if he gets remarried, he's guilty of adultery. And I'm not going to go into all the scriptures on that. I could preach a whole message just proving that divorce and remarriage is adultery. Alright? And that, if you do that, you're guilty. You're not blameless in that case. And, but, um, look at verse 11. When it gets uh, when it gets to the uh, qualifications of a deacon, notice what it says for the deacons. It says, "Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well." All right. So now, if it's a qualification for a deacon to have a faithful wife, 
Wouldn't it be a qualification for the bishop to have a faithful wife too? Well, if his wives are always leaving him, then he's disqualified by his wife, isn't he? Alright? And it's not that he's disqualified by his wife or some Jezebel. He's disqualified by the Word of God. Is what's disqualified him. But notice this too. <clears throat> Alright? It says, um, you know, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. How can you do that if you have a split up home? If some of your kids are in your ex-wife's house part of the time with her new husband, or you have some of her kids with you, you know, you and her are not ruling your own house as well. Your house is broken. Your house is, is split. It's it's fractured. It's messed up. You're you're not qualified in so many ways if you've been divorced. All right? It doesn't mean God can never use you. It doesn't mean you can't do great things for God. It doesn't even mean you can ever preach the gospel. But you're not supposed to be a bishop. Your home is so important. And there's the, you know there was a generation of preachers in the past, and I think some have learned from this, that ministry was so important that they forgot about their homes. And their homes fell apart. And their homes crashed and burned. And you know what? You've got to take care of your home. A pastor that can't take care of his home should not be taking care of a church. And you don't, you don't go and throw your family away for your church. Okay? That is a mentality of the previous generation, and it's one I believe there's an awakening on, and a lot of people have learned from that mistake. And you know what? I love y'all, but I don't want to throw away my family trying to fix all your problems. Alright? I would rather take care of my family first and then see what I can do over here. Alright? Let my family be the priority, and y'all can take a back seat. Alright? And you don't have to like that, but, you know, go to the church where the pastor he puts his people first and his family's a wreck. There's plenty of those out there. If you want, you know, if you want one whose marriage is a wreck and all that, just go find your nearest Ruckmanite church, and I'm sure they probably got one right there for you. Whose kids are as bad as all get out, drug dealing, and all that kind of stuff. And I know some of those. You know, you have, you know, go to a Peter Ruckman church with Peter Ruckman Jr. who went and killed his own boys and then killed himself. A guy who did not meet the qualifications, who did not take care of his house. And look at what he produced. I don't want. I want grandkids, all right. And I, I want, I want sons. And I don't want sons who kill themselves and kill my grandkids too. So you know what? Y'all are taking the back seat, all right. Y'all are taking the back seat, and you're just going to have to get over it. But we, you can't rule your own house well when your house is broken and mixed. And notice that you know you can't have your children in subjection like you're supposed to. You know, if my wife, if she becomes the Jezebel, as the preachers always want to call it, and she goes and she leaves me and she's got cussy the kids half the time and I got the other time, well, you know how you know how easy it would be for her to get me in trouble if I'm just spanking the kids. And that happens too. Whenever there's broken homes, it often makes it almost impossible for one parent to raise their children the right way because the other parent can always go and then they can report them. You know, they leave a little mark on their backside or something. They'll go turn them into DCFS. And whose side do you think DCFS is going to be on? They're going to be on the Jezebel side every time. And it does. You're now just kind of, you're handicapped from ruling your own house well just because of a divorce. So there, there's so many ways a divorced man does not meet the qualifications of a bishop. And that's why the Bible says a husband of one wife. And end of story, uh, we should follow that blindly. And... So notice too, it says, uh, husband and one wife, uh, and then men, notice too when it says children in subjection. Alright? 
children in subjection. And a lot of times people bring this up and like, well, you know, some of these pastors who start pastoring when they just have, you know, two kids and they're little, you know, they're only like two or three years old. How do we know those pastors have those children in subjection? Alright? Should they wait until those kids are teenagers so we can make sure they really got them under control? Well, you know what? I don't think it's necessary to wait that long. In fact, I think, I, I do, I agree, and I'm not always stood up for this and I've not always stood by this, but you know what? I've been proven wrong enough now that it's like, yeah, you know, I guess the Bible's right. And you know what? I think children means children. And I'm pl- that's plural. That means at least two. And no, and you, and you say, well, what if they're only like one and two years old? If a guy has two kids, all right, you can know by the time he has two kids if he has those children in subjection, all right, unless maybe it's twins, all right, if they have twins the first time, you know, you might not know just yet, but within the first year, you can find out if a parent has them in subjection. And here's how you can tell, all right, remember, I, I grew, I've grown up in church, I went to one church for 23 years, all right, I've seen it all, and I've seen these parents before who, as soon as they have a kid, that child, that baby puts them in subjection. Okay? They now can hardly ever come to church because they got a crying baby. I mean, I, I see parents, they've got a little baby and it's got a runny nose and the entire family has to stay home from church to blow that little kid's nose. You know who's running that house? The baby's running that house. That child is not in subjection. But you know what? There's parents that are out there. They have little kids. And you know what? They're still in church. They're still faithful. They can still make it in the house of God. They can still go soul winning. Listen, my kids have been sick before. My wife has had to stay home with the kids. But you know what? She didn't have to have my help too because you know I have a capable wife and she knows how to blow a kid's nose. All right? She knows how to do those things. And the whole family doesn't have to stay behind because little Lord Fauntleroy is not feeling good and he's got a runny nose and a little tummy ache. But that's the way it is in a lot of homes. A person like that, a person, a dad who has to stay, you know, take keep his whole family home out of church because some little kid in the family's got a snotty nose. That man is not qualified to be a pastor. He's letting that little brat rule the house instead of him ruling the house. And let me tell you something. When we started having kids, all right, we had two boys first. We had two boys in a row, and they were rotten. All right, they were rotten. They had, they had their serious issues. And I remember we would go to restaurants, and I remember. They were always terrible. They, they weren't that bad at church, most of them, but restaurants, they were just out of control. And finally, one day we were talking, like, you know what? We're not going to be able to go out to eat anymore. We just can't go out to eat. And I remember I was like, you know what? No. No, no, no. We're not going to be one of those families who can't do what they need to do because their kids are brats. You know what we're going to do? We're going to conquer this thing. We're going to fight the battle, and we're going to win the battle. And it was a long-fought battle. It was hard. There was a lot of screaming. There was a lot of you know. There was a lot of spankings and a lot of wailing and hollering. But you know what? We won the battle. All right. We won the battle. And you know what? Today, it's not uncommon for us to go out with our six kids. I know they're getting older now, and it's getting easier. But hey, we've been getting compliments for years when we're in restaurants. You know why? Because we fought the battle. Because like you know what? I'm going to rule my house. I'm going to have my children in subjection, and you can find out. If a parent has is running a home or the kids are running a home at a very very young age, I think it's I think it's real simple. If we had a guy here and he's wanting to be a pastor and he's got two kids and they're faithful to church, they're faithful to soul winning, they're able to do the things they need to do. They haven't got a crisis every other week where the whole family's out of church and you know all of them aren't able to do anything. I'll know this guy has got control of his house. 
This guy is ruling his own house well. And so they don't need to, they don't need to have teenagers or anything like that. I support the guy who just has little kids who's running the house well and not letting the kids run the house. And that is a sad thing. And parents, you know, you can't, you can't let a baby run everything. Alright? I understand, you know, when they're little babies, it's a lot of work. You gotta feed them. But you know what? That's part of being a parent. You've still gotta do the things that you're supposed to do. There's responsibilities you have and you cannot neglect those things. And as a pastor, there's challenges. There's things that are difficult. It's hard to do what needs to be done sometimes. You gotta overcome some things. Sometimes you gotta miss, miss some sleep. You can't always do the fun things you want to do, but you know what? You gotta be willing to sacrifice, and you gotta be willing to make the extra effort, and too many people give up way too quickly. And so, you know, I, I don't have a problem if a pastor has an age requirement. I don't have a problem with that, alright? But, you know, but at the same time, I don't think that's necessary. The Bible doesn't give an age requirement, but it does say having children in subjection with all gravity. And the Bible doesn't tell us how we can know if their children are in subjection, but I think it's pretty obvious to tell if their children are in subjection with all gravity. I think you can learn that from a very young age. Doesn't mean the kid's never going to throw a fit, all right? Just because you know we, you know, somebody has to take one of their kids out of church and you know tan their hide when they, you know, in the back room. Hey, you know what? That's part of it. Kids are going to be bad, but you know what? They're dealing with it. They're handling it. They're doing what they're supposed to do, and it's not taking the whole family out of church. And there's a lot of people like that. And then some of these same people, they want to be in the ministry. It's like, I'm sorry. Okay? If you can't even keep your family in church, if a runny nose of a baby takes your entire family out of church, you are not a leader. You are not ruling your house. You are not qualified to be a bishop. And that's the way I feel about it. You know, You don't like that? Go to one of these churches where you can, you know, they'll ordain anybody, including women. They'll take care of you, but not here. We don't want to be sent out people that aren't qualified. It says not a novice, alright? We need people that have been saved for a while. We need people that know their Bible. Some people, they're just so anxious. They're so anxious to be that pastor. And there's a reason for that many times. You know, we need people that have some experience in leading and following. Okay, there's people that they've never led anything in their life. You've got a lot of these young guys too. They go to Bible college, and a lot of people think Bible college pretty much is all the training they need. That is proven over and over again to not be true. Accomplishing four years of Bible college does not qualify a man to be a pastor. And don't make me point out the evidence. I don't want to go naming people and stuff like that. But you know, most of these guys will tell you. Most of my friends. That like you know graduated Bible college, they will tell you I didn't learn any doctrine in Bible college. I didn't learn hardly anything in Bible college. That is their testimony. That's what they tell me. I didn't learn hardly anything in Bible college. That's what they all say. I, I've I've never heard a guy get up a, a young guy get up and defend you know ordaining a guy right out of Bible college. I've never heard one do that. You know who I do here defending that? The guys running the Bible colleges. You know why? Because they want your money. But the guys who actually did that, none of them. I'm sure there's some out there who's trying to kiss the rears of their popes and their leaders out there, and so they'll say it. But the guys that I know, the ones I've talked to, well, I mean, the, the 
not a majority, all of them, tell you I didn't learn anything. That's what I'm saying. And you know what? Somebody who's going to pastor a church, they need to have led. They need to have actually accomplished something. They need to, they need to have some experiences. And there's no reason to be in a big fat hurry to be a pastor. There are plenty, plenty of ministry opportunities available. You got these guys, you know, we got to do something before Jesus comes back. Well, there's plenty to do without being a pastor. There's plenty of soul winning opportunities. There's going to be plenty of preaching opportunities. If you're willing to do it. And a good sign that someone is a novice. Okay, because look what it says. It says, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Alright? Not a novice, it says very it says uh, very specifically there. And <clears throat> lost my spot. And so and, and notice how it says why? Because he's gonna be lifted up with pride. Well, what does that young guy do? Alright? That young guy, why does he want to be the pastor so bad? You know why? He just wants that exalted position. I want that platform. I want to be able to I want to preach to the whole crowd. I want everybody to notice me. I want people to know who I am. You know, I want to preach that sermon and put it out there on YouTube and you know get get YouTube famous and stuff like that. You've got all these guys that are anxious to do that, but they're not anxious to serve. They're not anxious to actually do something behind the scenes and do the things that nobody sees. Because a lot of these guys, they don't even have a clue because they've not been involved in the ministry what it actually takes to be a pastor. It's not all just getting up behind a pulpit and preaching. That's all many people see. But that is not all there is to it. And many of these young men, they want that exalted position as fast as they can. You know why? Because they got a pride problem. And it's not that even that there's anything wrong with them. I do. I expect a little bit of arrogance... And I expect young guys to be a punk to a certain extent. It's just, it's normal, alright? We were all there at one time. Thought we were the hot shots, thought we can do it all. But some of us, you know, we were in subjection to people who let us know that, hey, you know, that would put us in our place when we needed to. But a lot of guys say they don't have that. And so what they're doing, they have pastors who, you know, don't want to upset them, they don't want to make their mommies and daddies mad in the church. So what do they do? They send these guys out and then they go and they crash and burn. And the truth is they were a novice. They didn't know what they were doing. You know, go accomplish something first. You know, go, you know, go learn something first. Matthew chapter 20 verse 27, 28. You know, but whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. For even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. That's what Jesus did. But we've got too many guys today, they want to be the chief and they don't want to be the servant. But God said the one who's going to be the chief is the one who's going to be the servant. And they want to bypass that. They want to skip that. And their problem is they don't even realize that being a pastor and being a bishop is being a servant. It is being a servant. They think it's just being the boss and running things. And that is not what it is at all. And because they were a novice, because they didn't know what they were doing, because they never led anything in their life, they get up, and when reality starts hitting them, they're just not ready for it, and they crash and they burn. And it ends up hurting the church. It ends up hurting the cause of Christ. It ends up making the church look bad. It makes Christians look bad. Why? Because we sent guys out before they were ready. And we don't have time to go over each one of these uh, you know, little details on these things. I need to get through this quickly. But no, you know, it says... Uh, he must have a good report of them that are without. Alright? A good report of them uh, that are without. Lest he fall or uh, losing my spot. 
Yeah, a good report of them which are not, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. We need it's supposed to be people that do they have a good testimony, even among the lost. In first Samuel chapter two and verse twenty four, right, a good report. What does that mean? Because <clears throat> a lot of times lost people, they will once again we get accused you get accused of things that aren't true. They might say things that are bad, they might speak evil of you. They might give you an evil report, but once again falsely. But in 1 Samuel 2.24, this is talking about Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were servants. He said, Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear ye make the Lord's people to transgress. We see that guys like Hophni and Phinehas, they were so wicked that they made the people of God, they hated the offerings of the Lord. They hated the things of God because these guys abused it so bad. They misused it so bad. And so as a result of it, people were turned away from these things. And you know what? Someone who's a bishop should not be somebody who is turning people away from the things of God because of evil practices. Jesus Christ is going to be an offense enough for these people. Many of the teachings of the Word of God are going to be offensive enough to the world. The last thing that we need is a guy who's out there in the world cussing people out, you know, committing adultery, doing all these sins, Alright, somebody who is one way in here, alright? He's got a good report in here because, you know, he's got you all fooled. He's got you all thinking he's something great, but then out there in the world, people are seeing something different. And once again, a lot of times a pastor that preaches the truth is not going to be liked in the world. But what's he being accused of? Is it things that are in violation of the scriptures? And are these things true? And if that's the case, if he's got a bad testimony out in the world, we don't need him pastoring the church. If he's ripping people off financially out there, we don't need him pastoring this church. Guess what everybody's going to do? They're going to accuse that guy of being a crook with the church's money. People are going to be afraid to give uh, their offerings and things. And that's the last thing we need to have. So look at verse 8. Let's look at the qualifications of a deacon real quick. But I, I believe those. I, I probably should have spent a whole week just on the qualifications of a bishop. But I want to get through this. I want to kind of get to the main point at the end. It says, likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So right here for the uh, for the deacon, he mentions um, grave. In other words, they're honorable. They're honest. You know, not double-tongued. They practice what they preach. They're not talking one way in here and another way out there. You know, not given to much wine. What's that talking about? You know, for the bishop, not given to wine. For the deacon, not given to much wine. All right. What, what's the difference there? Well, there's multiple things, and I've preached about this before. But you know, wine. You got to understand too. It's remember, there's good wine. All right, fruit of the vine. But you understand, it was kind of a luxury thing back in the day. And the we don't need, and we've got a bunch of these today. Just a bunch of just these spoiled, extravagant living people in the ministry. We we don't need that. Somebody who's just you know that glutton and that wine bibber that just is giving their flesh whatever they want, living an extravagant life. That's not what we need. That, but that's the way it is today. You know, you got these missionaries that are out there, the millennial missionaries 
that you know half the pictures that they want to post of what they're doing is just drinking Starbucks and stuff. It's like really we're going to send you support money so you can go literally drink the most expensive things you can buy that are not alcohol. You know, living extravagantly. I personally think that's partly what that's talking about. You know, stuff like that was a lot more expensive back then. You know, a lot of food was harder to come by. And if you're going, you're squeezing all the juice out of the grapes and you're throwing all the other stuff away that you could be using for food, you could be eating just so you could, you know, enjoy just the juice itself and have more and what's more pleasurable. I think it's just kind of a waste. And I personally think that's what that's talking about. I could be wrong on that. Another thing, too, you know, Paul told Timothy, take a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thy off infirmities. It could be a reference to... Uh, you know, medicine and things. If somebody is taking things, are um, you know, they have bad health problems to where they have to take uh, medication. You know, today we wouldn't use wine, but maybe medication that could be mind altering and have different side effects and things. That person probably shouldn't be pastoring. A guy who is on med, mind altering meds, probably should not be pastoring. He should probably step down. He's not going to be making good judgment. Uh, I've known some pastors who have committed suicide. One thing these guys all have in common, they were all on mind-altering meds. Alright? And, you know, I don't know. It, it, these are just some things that I, I think we need to, um, you know, take into consideration. But I personally think it's just, they don't need to be extravagant and spoiled. And we don't need to make deacons and preachers poor and living in poverty. But you know what? They don't necessarily need to be living like, you know, kings and princes and stuff like that. It says, because then the next thing he says, you know, not greedy of filthy lucre. We don't want people doing it for the money. And you know what? I'm afraid some churches, they take care of their pastors so well, it's like a lot of people want to do it for the money. They are doing it for filthy lucre's sake. And we're not supposed to do these things for filthy lucre's sake. We're supposed to be feeding the flock of God willingly and not by constraint. We're not being, a pastor ought to be somebody who wants it, not somebody who's forced into doing it or somebody who's just doing it for the money. Alright? I say it all the time where I work out the distribution center. I'll go in there sometimes on days when I don't have to and people thank me for coming in there and I always just tell them, I'm just here for the money. Yeah, I say it all the time. I'm here for the money. As soon as you quit paying me, I'm going to quit coming. <laughs> and that's how I feel about that job out there. Now here, it's a different story. I'll do things for free here if I have to. Alright? But out there, forget it. I, I ain't stacking boxes for free. As soon as they quit paying me, I'm going to quit doing it. I'm doing it by constraint and for filthy lucre. Alright? But uh, it's not why I'm pastoring the church. Alright? I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it for that reason. I'll admit it out there. And then look at this. Holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. They need to understand spiritual things. I preached a whole message about that a while back. I'm not going to repre- I'm not going to re-preach it about the mystery of faith. Holding the mystery of faith in a pure conference, uh, pure conscience. They need to understand spiritual things. And many preachers in the ministry today, they're just preaching what they've been told to preach. And a lot of times they don't even understand. They don't even understand. They're just repeating what their pastor says. And you know what? We need to test these people to make sure they actually know their stuff. Hey, is this your conviction? Or are you just preaching what you heard the pastor preach? Are you just saying what you know will please the pastor? And listen, you can tell. When somebody's preaching something, you can tell when it's their doctrine personally versus somebody who they're just saying what they need to say. It is very, very obvious. And a a person who's a deacon, it needs to be somebody. It is. It's actually their doctrine. They're holding it in a pure conscience. 
In other words, they're, they're preaching things because they, they believe it's the truth. They're convinced that it's the truth. They're not just doing it because they feel like they have to. No, they're convinced. You cannot convince them it's not the truth. I believe that's what that's talking about. You know, Many people that are loyal to men and they're not loyal to the Word of God. And when you're teaching something you don't understand, it's going to hurt your conscience. Look what it says in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times shall some, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. What happened to these people? You know what? They got up for so long, for so many years, lying to people that it became easy. Their conscience got seared with a hot iron. And we need to make sure that people, if they're going to be deacons, if they're going to be bishops, it needs to be people that, I mean, this is their doctrine. The things that we teach, the things we believe in this church, they have convinced us beyond a shadow of a doubt that they actually believe once saved, always saved. They actually believe the things that we preach in this church, and it's their doctrine. And another way you can tell too, so you can tell when a guy just went and copied an outline, or he's just copied a message somebody else preached. But somebody who really believes it, it's their own, a lot of times, you know, they'll have their own points. They'll find their own scriptures. They'll have clear, they've clearly done their own study, and maybe they have their own, own way of, you know, presenting it that's unique to them. And it's just, it's very obvious when something is theirs versus something that's just recycled. And I believe that's important and we need to look for that. And so, to sum it all up, they need to have proven that what they're preaching is their doctrine and that they're not just a parrot. And that's why I said, let them first be proved. We've got to prove them. It said, you know, they need to fill the role. I believe before we give somebody the role of a deacon or what many would call an assistant pastor today, which I think is just a deacon, it needs to be somebody who does the work first without the title. I think that's what it's talking about there in uh, verse 10. And let these first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. If this guy is doing everything that a deacon does, and he does it great, alright, you know what? Now let's make him a deacon. But there's a lot of people, they talk about how they want to do these works, but they're not going to do it until you give them the title. They're not going to do it till you give them the paycheck. You know what? You do the work first, and then you can get the paycheck. That's how it was when I was at my dad's church. I did the work of an assistant pastor or the work of a deacon for years before I started getting paid for it. And whenever you know, and it was it was funny too because like whenever I officially became the, the assistant pastor, people were like, you know, wasn't he already? You know, and and really not that much changed. I just officially had the title and I started getting a paycheck, and I started doing it all the time, and I was able to do more. And that's what. Uh, that's a good way to prove somebody. I think it's great a lot of the churches that we know that have the satellite churches out there where you've got young men who aren't necessarily qualified yet who are basically doing the work of a pastor. They're, they're pretty much they're doing the work of a bishop, but they don't have the title, they don't have the authority, but they're doing the work. And once they, have, they meet these qualifications... They will have been able to. They will have already met the, probably the most important qualification, and that's they've been proved. Hey, man, this guy he's been running this church. He's been doing this for a year. He's been doing it for two years. He's doing a great job. You know what? I think it's, I think we can lay hands on this man. The Bible says lay hands suddenly on no man. I believe talking about ordaining him and putting him in those positions of authority, and I I personally think that is a great thing 
that's going on in a lot of these a lot of these churches, how the way they send these men out, they're doing all the work, but they don't have the title and they don't have the authority. And it's a great testing ground for them to prove them. And once they've proved them, then you know what? With confidence, they can go and they can lay hands on these men and send them out. And so, I've got, I've got to skip some of this stuff. So, look, look at verse 14. These things I write unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, what have I been talking about as we go through the first Timothy? I've been talking about behavior. Sound, first chapter, sound doctrine about behavior. It's important that you know, we get caught up in things that affect our behavior and not just make us think we're smart. Okay? And good doctrine is, very, is of the utmost importance. We've got to have that and we've got to preserve that. And he's writing these things so they'll know how to behave in the house of God. So we can know how we can make sure we continue to have sound doctrine preached in the church. So you know what? Here's a list of some things you need to look for when you're going to have a bit hire a bishop or a deacon. Here's some things you need to have. And then look at this. Alright, verse 16. says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Right here is one of the big verses that we look at approving the deity of Christ. Alright? The mystery of godliness. That was another message I preached a while back when I was going through the mysteries. The mysteries of godliness. One thing we often forget to do whenever we're studying doctrine. And it's important. Now, there's a, there's a ton of good doctrine right here in that one verse. If somebody preaches a message on the deity of Christ and they just use that as a text verse and they don't touch one other verse in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's not inappropriate for them to do that. But at the same time, why did God throw in this extremely important doctrine in one verse at the end of a chapter that's just about the qualifications of a pastor and a bishop? We need to ask ourselves that question because this is very important. Why God did that? Why did, why did God do that? Why do we have this very important verse at the end of this? You know why? Because this is, right here we're seeing why it's so important that bishops and deacons be people who are qualified. You know why? Because great is the mystery of godliness. And we have got to make sure we maintain sound doctrine. We do not want doctrines being corrupted and being perverted. And if we just let anybody up behind the pulpit, if we just let anybody pastor a church, if we just let anybody be a deacon, when it comes to some of these great mysteries and some of these deeper things, they are going to get corrupted and they are going to corrupt doctrines that could that will ultimately bring in damnable heresies. And you know what I find interesting about it is a lot of the false doctrine that we're seeing popping up in the independent Baptist world is coming from people who are not qualified to be a pastor. What if? What if people would have stepped up? What if Baptists would have stepped up and said, you know what? 
Forget Peter Ruckman. He's not qualified to be a pastor. He's not qualified to lead. You know what? Maybe we wouldn't be having all this junk with dispensationalism that's being taught and that is just corrupted so many Baptist churches. If people would have said, you know what? We reject the Schofield Bible. This man was not a Baptist. He was not a King James guy. He was not somebody qualified to lead. The man couldn't rule his own house well. He abandoned his first wife and his, his children. And they would have rejected him based on the fact that he wasn't qualified. Maybe we wouldn't have things like the gap theory being taught that you see right there in between Genesis 1.1 and 1.2. You wouldn't have all the garbage doctrine that comes from a Schofield Bible if people would have passed this on and said, you know, we're going to follow these rules blindly. Ignore Schofield. He's not qualified. Ignore Peter Ruckman. He's not qualified. And then interestingly enough, here in verse 16, after it gets to all these things, it goes to the mystery of godliness. This is a great mystery. And who is it that's corrupting the doctrines of the Trinity today? It's people who are not qualified to be a pastor. It's people who are not, who are not qualified. Some of these, the main guy leading a lot of this junk, Tyler Baker, he was somebody who was being trained and was raised up. But you know what? He got busted. He got busted. It was found out by his pastor that this man was a heretic and he cast him out of the church. He did not lay hands on him. He did not ordain him. He was not, he, and therefore he was not qualified. But what does he do? He goes, you know, he has his daddy ordain him. And so, you know, now he can claim to be a pastor. But the truth is, that man was marked because of the fact they were following the commands of the Bible. This guy got busted before he could be put in that position to do the damage, and but unfortunately somebody else stepped in, and they just went and just you know threw him in that position, and now he's doing damage, and he's leading a lot of unqualified people captive in this very doctrine. And we see though, if people would just follow First Timothy three blindly, like we should, you know what they would, they would reject guys like him. So you know what? Okay, he makes some good points, but you know what? I'm not going to listen to a man that clearly is not qualified to be a pastor. And a lot of the guys that are teaching a lot of this new junk and coming up with these crazy doctrines are guys that aren't even qualified to be pastors in the first place. Another one of the pastors, too, that's promoting some of the same modalism junk are guys like Kenneth McCraney, somebody who preached here in this church. I had him preach. I made an exception because I, I, and I, you know what, I still think adopted kids count. All right? Some pastor friends with me, they disagree with me on that, and that's fine. I got no problem with them. I think adopted kids count. Because of the simple fact, an adopted kid is like your real kid. And if, if, if an adopted kid gets all the rights and privileges of a biological kid, then the parent should get all the rights and privileges of a biological parent. Some guys think, well, if God wants you to be a pastor, He would enable you to have the kids. Okay, you know that's fine. All right? I'm not gonna, you know, split hairs over that. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fight them over that. That's just my personal opinion. I've been wrong on some of this other stuff before, and I might be wrong on that too. But I thought with him. You know, and I thought I, he didn't. I thought he had an adopted kid. I found out when he was here, it wasn't his adopted kid. Was, she was pretty much just a prop to look like he has a kid, because he knew that you know we believe that way. And he's all caught up in this modalism stuff. Another this one this junk. Another guy who doesn't understand the mystery of godliness. And is teaching false doctrine on the mystery of godliness, and yet people are listening to him, not understanding that you know what, he's disqualified. He has no business. Found out the church he was pastoring, he or he hadn't even been ordained. He had not been ordained. He pretended he was ordained, but he had not been ordained. 
And so what does he do now? He gets thrown out of his church for being a fraud. And what does he do? He just goes and starts another church. Stand fast, Liberty Baptist. Why, why do you have to put the Liberty in there? I mean, there's too many words for a name of church. But anyway, you know, but I'm telling you, a lot of the false doctrine that's being promoted in the independent fundamental Baptist churches are people from people who are not qualified. God put these here for a reason. And you know what? I don't care how good someone sounds. I don't care how smart they seem. People like to talk about how smart Peter Ruckman was. You know, and I, I didn't know the guy personally. I haven't listened to much of his stuff. I've read some of his stuff pretty weird. All right? And they'll talk about how smart he was, but you know who cares how smart he was? The man wasn't qualified. And in the end of the day, his doctrines clearly aren't biblical. And if people would have just said, you know, he's smarter than me. I can't necessarily talk my way around that guy. You know, I can't beat him in a debate or anything like that. But you know what? I'm not going to listen to him. He's not qualified. And pastors have got to stop sending out unqualified men. It's ruining churches. You know what? I I understand, yes, we need more churches. We need more churches. But actually, in reality, we need less churches. We need more biblical churches. We need more biblical pastors. And if we could start, if some of these other churches would start closing down, you know what? There'd be a lot less confusion. And I do. I think we need more churches to shut their doors. We need more guys who are not qualified to just do the right thing and say, you know what? I shouldn't be a pastor, but you know what? I'll go serve in a church that has a biblical pastor, somebody that has a qualified pastor. This is not a time to lower the qualifications and to lower the standards. If anything, we got to step these things up. And we've got to stick to them. You know why? Because great is the mystery of godliness. We don't need these these doctrines being perverted and being corrupted by novices, by people who are unqualified. These things need to be. We need to we need to stick to the truth of these things and don't listen to unqualified people. Don't listen to them. Just go ahead and ignore them. You know, and shut them off. Don't listen to them. Think of just think of how much better things would be in the Baptist world if people would have done that with Schofield. Think about that. I don't I don't think there would be dispensationalism if there was no Schofield. And the thing is, God put some things on there, some qualifications. Well, he wasn't a pastor. Well, listen, if he's not qualified to pastor, he's definitely not qualified to make his own study Bible. To be and his junk, it's being taught, and and. All I mean, churches everywhere and Bible colleges and everything. If he's not qualified to pastor, he's not definitely not qualified to do all that junk. Think of how much better things would be. All people would have had to do is listen to the simple instructions of First Timothy chapter three, and they could have avoided all that mess. But they didn't. They rejected it. They made an exception, and we're dealing with the consequences of it today. And it's time we get this stuff right, and we have a revival of this. I'm not going to go beat up guys that aren't qualified. I want to encourage them, try to get them qualified and doing the right thing. But you know what? Ah, I am these guys that are sending these people out. They need to be taken to task. I'm sorry. No matter what we teach, some 18 year old zealous dude, if somebody offers him a job as pastor, he's going to take it. All right? Unless he's just got wisdom beyond his years, he's going to take it. You know, it's just it's the way it's the way. I I would have probably done it too. My uncle Ken. Alright, my Uncle Ken, he's been pastoring his church for 30 years. He had a church ask him to be a pastor when he was like 14 or 15 years old. His dad was a pastor, and they came to him and they said, we want your son to pastor our church. And my, 
you know, my uncle's dad, he's like, no, no, he, he's not. Qualified. And and he went and he told Uncle Ken about it. And my uncle Ken, you know, he was just like, well, great, I'll do it. And, he, and his dad was like, no, you're not. And he was just like, he, 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 my uncle Ken, he tells the story. He's like, he, he was like, I was like, why not? Why can't I do it? Fourteen year old kid, you think a fourteen year old kid's qualified to pastor a church? Well, he did. Alright? He did. It's just, you know, that's how young people are. Thankfully, he had a dad that said, nope, you're not. He told me, he said, it's too far away for you to ride your bike, and I'm not driving you there every week. That was, that was what he told him. Pretty much common sense. And you know what? He got really mad at his dad. But today, he'll tell that story, and he'll laugh about it, and he'll be the first one to tell you, my dad knew what he was talking about. His dad did him a favor by sticking to his guns. And we're not helping people out when we make exceptions for them. We're only hurting them. And so we're not going to do that here. We're not, we're not going to get caught up in that stuff. We're going to send people out. We're going to send them out right. And so, With that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. Help us to follow these things, Lord. Help us to not try to bend the rules and find ways around them or think we're smarter than them. But Lord, help us to follow Your Word blindly, Lord. It, it turns out to be right every single time without exception, and I pray you'll help us to avoid a lot of the consequences of not following them. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand and turn to page 338. Sing Look and Live, page 338. I have a message from the Lord. Hallelujah. The message unto you. Only 